Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. This is August Baker, and I'm, today I'm talking with Professor Ronald Biner about his book, Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far-Right University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome, Professor Biner. Uh, I'm happy to participate. Thanks so much for your interest in the book. That's great. Yes, I uh, actually listened to it in the summer, and I was using, uh, I actually listened to it on audio. It comes in audio. I listened to it, instead of read it first. Yeah. Um, let me uh, just, first of all, give the listeners an overview. Um, these are some of the reviews of the book, and I'll just read three, three quick paragraphs here. One is from John McCormick, University of Chicago. Ronald Biner's Dangerous Minds is a staggeringly impressive and deeply needed book that traces the philosophical foundations of contemporary reactionary politics, the philosophical works of Nietzsche and Heidegger. Heiner avoids both shrillness while confronting present-day opponents of liberal democracy and shallowness while excavating the work of their intellectual heroes. Indeed, he treats authors such as Julius Ebola and Alexander Dugan with deathly seriousness, and he soberly and with exquisite philosophical care delves into the fundamental core of Nietzsche's and Heidegger's writing. Dangerous Minds is elegantly structured and beautifully written. It will be widely read and debated in this frightening age of fascist resurgence. Second one is Stephen Smith, Yale University. A great book, if it proves anything, is that ideas have consequences, often profound and dangerous ones. One perhaps unintended benefit of the emergence of the new right is that it forces readers of Nietzsche and Heidegger to see them for what they are, apostles of a resurgent fascism. For those accustomed to reading these thinkers as prophets of individual liberation and moral self-realization, Ronald Biner has a clear message, think again. And finally, from uh, contemporary political theory, in this erudite, insightful, and short monograph, Ronald Biner takes aim at often French-inspired intellectuals who believe that Nietzsche and Heidegger can and should be deployed to advance a progressive or radically democratic politics. Feiner believes that the two philosophers often serve as better resources for fascists. Dangerous Minds mounts its critique in the light of the recent rise of far-right movements, which often rely on Nietzsche and Heidegger for philosophical ballast. Professor Feiner, do you have any uh, corrections or clarifications on those? uh, no, I appreciate the uh, generous uh, reactions to the to the book, and right. I think they all kind of state what the uh, basic enterprise is. So good, I'm comfortable with those blurbs. Yeah, yeah. His blurbs. So. Right, right. I understand that. Um, one, I want to read. Um, start off uh, a paragraph from your book. You say. Hopefully, no reader of my book will draw from it the unfortunate conclusion that we should just walk away from Nietzsche and Heidegger, that is, stop reading them. On the contrary, I think we need to read them in ways that make us 
more conscious of, more reflective about, and more self-critical of the limits of the liberal view of life, and hence what defines that view of life. Could you ex expand on that? I thought that was an interesting approach. Yeah, happy to do that. I mean, someone actually said quite recently on a podcast uh, where, you know, my book came up, said, I don't want people reading Nietzsche. I'm trying to dissuade people from reading Nietzsche. Well, that's just complete uh, nonsense. I never said that. I never have said it. I never would say it. And it's kind of basically a, a slander. I myself been reading Nietzsche and Heidegger my whole adult life. I mean, since I was... Um, since I became a political theorist in my early 20s, uh, you know, I've taught them. I taught, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the book came from a seminar, grad seminar I taught on Nietzsche. So if I'm teaching him, I want people to read him and read Heidegger and learn from them and, and draw from them insights that will be helpful in dealing with contemporary cultural and political crises, which uh, is, uh, you know, that's that's the the context for the book, and that gives us extra reason to read them, try and understand what their essential message is, and learn from them. And um, you know, unfortunately, uh, the people seem not to have gone the the core message, or think that well, Nietzsche, there is no core mes message. He's just being playful, or he's just tossing out ideas, or He's a kind of contributing to a wonderful hyper-pluralism hyper or something like that. Well, I think that's just mis mistaken. And I think people who think that need to reread uh, Nietzsche and, or, or reread both of them and uh, understand better what the core vision is. And, uh, and once we understand that, perhaps it'll be uh, make it easier for us to cope with and, and respond to uh, the the kind of cultural and political crises we currently face, and uh, that's 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 why I, I wrote the book. Um, that, that, I mean, when you're writing a book on them, if I I just wanted to shoo them away and and or not engage with them and not and encourage other people to in, in, engage with them, right? Um, well, but I think the core the core insight one needs to get here is with respect to Nietzsche, to start with Nietzsche, and Heidegger in this respect is a kind of, you know, disciple, disciple of Nietzsche, political disciple of Nietzsche, and I think he understood himself in those terms, uh, that, that there is a definite political project in Nietzsche. I mean, it's just shocking the number of commentators who refer to Nietzsche as he's apolitical, he's anti-political, there's no politics in Nietzsche, there's no political philosophy in Nietzsche, I mean, all that's just to <laughs> so totally wrong that it, it's hard to fathom how people could read this thinker and and think such a thing. But and and it may be that the majority of readers are somehow getting that crazy, you know, upside down idea of Nietzsche. I mean, so from there not being a politics or a political project in Nietzsche, that political project is what's uh, powering what's animating the whole thing. I mean, these thousands and thousands of pages he's writing, there's politics on every page of Nietzsche. And, 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 and the, the, the core of his thought is that, that there, there is a political imperative uh, to uh, uh, undo uh, the, 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 the cultural political dispensation in which we currently live, which is a kind of 
a liberal, liberal egalitarian dispensation inherited from the French Revolution. Uh, liberal thinkers in the 19th century, such as Hegel and Tocqueville, assumed that that dispensation was irreversible, that the world that we have uh, were launched into by the French Revolution cannot be undone and should not be undone, and it raises us to a normally higher level. Nietzsche thinks the opposite, that it's degrading, that it's dehumanizing, uh, that it's impossible to have a culture in the the within the political, moral, political horizons shaped by the French Revolution. Uh, and, you know, Nietzsche thinks that politics should be at the service of culture. But if you have the wrong kind of politics, you can't have culture. And what is taken to be culture in a liberal egalitarian world is a, is a non-culture or pseudo-culture. Heidegger says the same thing, a moribund pseudo-civilization, he calls it. And the political project is to you know undo those horizons, undo that dispensation, so we can once again live in a cultural, live, live in a world where culture is possible. I mean, for for Nietzsche, Nietzsche culture is what everything is about, but but culture has political conditions. If you live in a world where everyone thinks they're the equal of everyone else, I mean, for him, the only real culture is top-down cultures, and so if you live in a world where top-down cultures are unacceptable then you live in a cultureless world. Right. And I think and Heidegger shared that view and hence their political preoccupations were, were, were the same, that that world has to be swept away or it has to be uh, raised, raised or, or, you know, we have to start over, wipe the slate clean and, and, and recreate a world where you can have real cultures. Uh, so the idea that this is unpolitical in any sense, that's just in, in, insanity. And, you know, if most people, if that's what most people are getting out of Nietzsche, they really have to take take another look at those texts and reread them because they're they're missing, you know, they're missing the the full force for the trees. And yeah. and you know, I'm trying to set that straight, not because I don't want them to read Nietzsche, but I want them to come closer to a, a genuine understanding of what his enterprise is, such that they can then draw insights from that about our world that can help us respond. To the crises of our of our liberal liberal world. Yes, I I mean I think you touched on this a little. Um, uh, it's not really the um, topic of your book, but you touched on it a little. That um, that we what is it about us with our intellectual heroes that once we align with someone, we want to read it everything they wrote in a positive light it's right. difficult to see them complexly it seems i i find that in myself you know I, i'm kind of like rooting for this particular philosopher or this particular thinker and it's difficult to see where they it's like you spend a lot of time with them and then it's difficult to see where they're just totally wrong and you end up wanting to defend them in some way i can i can totally understand that like i said i spent decades, you know, reading Nietzsche and Heidegger, probably read more Nietzsche and Heidegger than reading anyone else. And I felt that myself, that you don't want to think poorly of, 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 of Nietzsche. You get, you get, he draws you into his net. You get seduced by him. He's a, a, a rhetorician of genius. And he knows what buttons to press and how, how's, knows how to draw people's attention and how to keep their attention. And 
and and how to make people feel drawn to him and well and that's totally understandable and so you know my way of thinking about the book was you know time to square accounts with Nietzsche precisely because I was so uh, uh, drawn to and seduced by him myself and so I totally understand that but we you know the the the, the the times in which we're living are sufficiently serious. The stakes are very high to understand what anti, anti-liberal thinkers are really saying. I mean, there's a much more extreme example than Nietzsche and Heidegger. Look at Carl Schmitt. Look at Carl Schmitt's reception in contemporary intellectual circles. Uh, you know, he said, on the left. Well, how did that happen? Uh, you know, he was... He's much more evil than either of those two. Uh, uh, you know, he was totally, totally committed Nazi. I mean, not that Heidegger wasn't, but Carl Schmitt's much worse. And yet he he has the same, you know, <laughs> loving defenders and and you know, people apologizing to him, people kind of doing all kinds of somersaults to make him out to be a, a good guy and a healthy, you know. Uh, contributor to contemporary culture and 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 theory, it's just insanity. And you know, I I view those. There's not much discussion of Schmidt in the book, but it's really a kind of trinity of people who being misguidedly appropriated by people who you know theorists and intellectuals who should know better. All three of these guys belong very much to the far, not just the right, but the far right. And they themselves understood themselves that way. They all regarded liberalism and egalitarianism as a curse. And they were and shared the project of, of putting an end to it and undoing the hegemony of, of liberalism and, and of the idea of the freedom and equality of all human beings. They, they tested that idea. They saw it as, uh, as a dis- destruction of genuine culture. And we have to fight back, and in order to fight back, have to understand clearly what their project is. Start with uh, Nietzsche. I, uh, you know, what is what does the far right find in Nietzsche? Well, it's he writes. You you quote him in Ecce Homo that uh, his text Beyond Good and Evil is in all sense essentials a critique of modernity. Mm-hmm. encompassing the modern sciences, modern arts, and even modern politics. The purpose is to conjure up a contrary type that is as little modern as possible, a noble yes-saying type. Uh, white nationalists and fascists appear to be noble yes-saying types? Well, <laughs> through the, through the no- <laughs> I don't see them that way. But, right. You know, if a fascist is reading Nietzsche, they're going to See, see themselves, you know, uh, inscribed in Nietzsche's pages. And, you know, uh, when Nietzsche gave, I mean, often, you know, his descriptions are, are kind of crypt, cryptic or incomplete or, or, you know, just gestures towards something without filling in the details. But insofar as he does fill in the details, um, uh, they... Um, you know, it, it, it does fit what became fascism. You can't call Nietzsche a fascist because fascism didn't exist in the 19th century. But when it did come to exist, uh, it's no question uh, that, that fascists saw Nietzsche as art, articulating their, their, their project. 
uh, their endeavor. Uh, you know, George Licktime uh, wrote that not a single fascist from Mussolini to Oswald, uh, uh, from Mussolini to Oswald mostly, escaped Nietzsche's pervasive influence. Well, that's, you know, that's just a historical fact. I mean, you know, the, the, the influence of Nietzsche on fascism, that's not something hypothetical. That, that, uh, that's just uh, empirical. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that the, the breeding ground for fasc what became fascism in the 30s was, uh, you know, the, what was called the conservative or, or has been called the conservative revolution in the 1920s. Those, those people were uh, Nietzschean through and through in their self-understanding. And, and uh, that fed into Nazism. Now, once Nazism, you know, once they saw Hitler and, you know, saw the Nazis in power, they didn't necessarily like what they saw, that maybe saw it as too plebeian, it wasn't aristocratic enough. But of course, you know, you're going to have these grand ideas of some wonderful aristocracy, Nietzsche himself did. So if Nietzsche was still around in the 30s, he might have, you know, looked down at his, his notes at the fascists and said, well, these you know, this is this is more more democracy. It's not it's not aristocracy. But you know, of course, <laughs> you know you're you're uh, you know setting some agenda for some aristocratic revolution that's going to overturn liberalism and overturn egalitarianism. Well, you know, of course, it's not going to quite match what your you know your grand grand vision was, and and that would be true of Nietzsche too. You know, uh, but. But there are, you know, the, the kind of the rhetoric he does, you know, uh, he say, where, where are the, where are the, the, the grand, the great question is where are the, where there are, uh, where do we look to for the barbarians of the 20th century? He wanted barbarians. He, he praises barbarians. He praises, you know, uh, Vikings or civilizations that had, had, you know, no, no qualms about shedding blood. That's a kind of almost a test of, you know, that was part of the tragic vision that we, we can uh, have fight wars and, and see, be up to our knees in blood and, and not, uh, not worry about it, feel that it's, it's part of what it is to have a civilization. And um, so. Uh, in, in terms of the, the rhetoric that is a, a appealing um, to the far right, uh, you have this, quote from the from an early uh, Nietzsche text on the uses and disadvantages of history for life and talking about you might say the modern liberal this I think this is what the people on the right say the modern liberal can no longer extricate himself from the delicate net of judiciousness and truth for a simple act of will and desire right is that what you think there's no, there's no question that uh, Nietzsche wants to reorient the core of human life from, from reason to will. I mean, that's the idea of the will to power, that if you, li you live in a civilization that's dominated by intellect and, and reflection and science and reason, that Dr. Fauci feed, and uh, feed civilization and, and, and hence a kind of pseudo-civilization. Mm -hmm. and, and the test is whether you know, can you have a kind of civilization that, I don't know, uh, builds pyramids? You know, well, to have pyramids, you need slaves. And to have slaves, you, you, you can't believe in equality. You have to believe that, 
you know, that there's a kind of top-down dictation of, 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 of cultural norms, and there have to be people who are mere instruments of that. And if you can't believe, I mean, liberalism undermines a belief in the, the kind of uh, top-down vision of things that make it possible for there to be cultures, any cultures. And, uh, you know, uh, where does liberalism come from? Well, it ultimately comes from Christianity, you know, mediated through the Reformation, then the Enlightenment, then the French Revolution. But ultimately, it's traceable back to Christianity and the belief that we're all uh, equal children of God. Well, those for, for Nietzsche, those are culture-destroying premises, and they have to be destroyed. It. So he, he declares war on Christianity. What, what, what's the reason for that? Well, that too is political. Uh, that that if you if you start with Christ, the premises of Christianity, what you end up with are, are you know liberalism as a, egalitarian liberalism as a general dispensation, and that means no culture. Only you know people have to be ruthless and impose their will and strive for the heroic and strive for grand visions of things. I mean that's what the fascists were trying to do. Look at their architecture. Uh, you know, Nietzsche says, well, look, at least they're trying, trying to be a real civilization. You know, they aspire to be around for a thousand years. Well, no liberal civilization is going to aspire to that. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, they were trying to, and they hated Christianity for precisely Nietzsche's reasons. And uh, um, there's a very powerful uh, book, uh, you know, my book on Nietzsche and I is very short thousand page book by Domenico Lazzardo called Nietzsche, the aristocratic rebel, in which kind of spells out, you know, that uh, how, how Nietzsche is pol political through and through. And if you're not persuaded by my little book, well, you got, I'd encourage people to read the thousand pages of Lazzardo and, you know, very incisive account of what the fascists owe to Nietzsche. It's all spelled out, I think, in in an utterly compelling way, in a way that's I think irrefutable, and uh, um, uh, you know it's not an accident that fascists historically have looked to Nietzsche as an inspiration, including Mussolini, including Hitler himself, went to the Nietzsche archives and warmly embraced Nietzsche's sister and had himself photographed with a bust, you know, a a a bust of his hero and. You know, and and contemporary fascists all love Nietzsche. There's there's nothing accidental about that. Um, it, it's um, and they have a good case for him belonging to them rather than belonging to us. You know, um, uh, it's all fully intelligible. Why 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 fascists? Whether you know fascists of the 20s and 30s or fascists in the 21st century would find inspiration from Nietzsche and. Um, uh, it, it, it all makes sense. I mean, Nietzsche's fundamental purpose as an intellectual, as a philosopher, is to delegitimize equality. And in order to do that, he has to delegitimize Christianity. That's the twin project. Everything flows from that. And if you can't see that as being at the, the core of Nietzsche's project, I don't think you can understand anything in Nietzsche. It, you have to appreciate what the core is. Because there is a core, it's not just you know playful pluralism. There, there is a hard core there. There's a political project in Nietzsche, no less than, and then there's a political project in Marx. For for Marx, the political project is to carry forward to the next stage, 
egalitarianism, of liberalism, and Nietzsche's the opposite. That that the commitment, the civilizational commitment to equality, has to be completely annulled, has to be completely annihilated, in order that there be real cultures. And you know, I think fascists see themselves as uh, take carrying that baton and and putting it into practice and trying to put Nietzsche's theory uh, in, into it into action. And you know, whether Nietzsche would have been impressed, you know, ha- entirely happy with the results well that's a different question but then you know would marx be happy with stalinism right that's not I, the, the point you know the right. point is there, there is an uh, 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 a vision there and 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 the fascists saw themselves as as trying to realize what nietzsche had articulated uh, normatively um would you say that both for marx and uh nietzsche they were long on criticism and short on how the new world is going to be. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, you know, you could say that's a kind of parallel between them, that they're, you know, they're both writing blank checks, very dangerous blank checks. Yes. And, you know, Nietzsche said that the 20th century would be, a, you know, an ideological war, the likes of which would, 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 had never been seen in human history. And uh, that was more or less true. I mean, that was uh, pretty prophetic. And the idea is, well, you have, you know, the Marxists on one side and you'd have the fascists on the other and you'd have the liberals in the middle who would be irrelevant. That the, and, and, and that he was on one side of that ideological uh, uh, war. So the, pro- the problem is, you know, for Nietzsche as much as for Marx, you know, there is, they're both utopians, uh, but they don't uh, fill in the content of this utopia. The, all the emphasis is on destroying the existing order. Mm. You know, for Marx, we wipe out capitalism, but then what succeeds capitalism? Well, you know, we find out later, you know, and right. Leninism and Stalinism in, in the case of Nietzsche, mm. same story, you know, that they're very powerful cultural critique uh sure let's destroy liberalism then what well then we get mussolini and hitler i mean uh you know nietzsche didn't spell out well if you you know follow this path you're going to wind up with hitler Uh, he just there you know there's this idea of well we'll get to the the further shore you know well we'll figure it out when when the arrow hits the further shore well by the time you get to the further shore uh sorry it's too late and uh so, yeah, it's that part of what makes them attractive as theorists is, you know, there, there's a kind of tremendous kind of ambition and reaching for the stars and kind of, you know, climbing Mount Everest uh, culturally and, and intellectually. Uh, and that, that's, that's part of what defines our theory tradition. But the theory tradition is dangerous precisely because, you know, you get in the, the theory canon by virtue of your ambition, but then... That, that can turn out to be politically ambitious if all you've done is write a bunch of blank checks. And I think both Nietzsche and Marx did that. Yeah. One of, one of paid the, the price for it in the 20th century. You yes. Know. <clears throat> and I think not just the 20th century, we're still, right. you know, there's no guarantee right this moment that the 20, 21st century won't be a replay of the 20th century. God help us if it is, but, but, but there's, you know, plenty to suggest that, that the 21st century could turn out to be as horrifying as the 20th century was. I mean, let's let's 
you know, again, that's part of be realistic. Part of what, I, what I wrote, why I wrote the book. It's right. What, here we go again. It's like Weimar all over again, where you get intellectuals. I mean, I, I guess like any, you know, like, like, like most liberals, like the assumption was, well, fascism, that'll never happen again. It's in the rubbish bin of history. It'll stay in the rubbish bin of history. And, you know, I wouldn't go to the extents of Fukuyama that, you know, liberal democracy will reign forever. That, that was, you know, I think obvious nonsense from the start. But, but certainly, you know, the, the idea of there being fascist intellectuals trying to, you know, pull fascism out of that rubbish bin of history, that was sort of beyond my imagination. And then I don't end the starting in 2015, more or less. And then, you know, it got worse after Trump was elected. You start saying, well, fascist intellectuals do exist and it's back. And, and it's back, not, not just, you know, in, in, with respect to mob behavior, but it's back with respect to intellectual activity. That was a very, uh, you know, scary realization for me. And I, wrote this book, I guess, as a kind of feeling, a kind of citizen's imperative to say something or do something or with the equipment I had to, to say, well, we better, we better, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. Yep. Uh, yeah. One of the, one of the, um, I think really one of the points you made that was, uh, I thought really interesting was you said Nietzsche puts a lot of energy into exposing liberal and leftist resentment. But he turned a blind eye toward or was silent about the resentment of the right, including his own. I was like, yes. It, it's, it's, it's pretty hard not to see all the resentment in the pages of Nietzsche. And for him, it's kind of the stand, that's the standard of, you know, uh, the things that he rejects supposedly are defined by resentment and all the business about yay saying and, you know, that's the opposite of resentment. Well, you know, his texts are not always, not every page, but but there's plenty of resentment patched, packed into Nietzsche's text. And it, it it delegitimizes him according to the standard he himself is 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 applying. And uh, you know, he's not as yay saying as he makes himself out to be. I mean, there's read this rhetoric of yay saying, but he doesn't he doesn't live up to that rhetoric. And you know, I think that's that's true of you know, the political legacy he's left, I mean, up till the present, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, right-wing populism is, is powered more than anything by resentment against, you know, um, supposed, you know, uh, liberal elites, you know, who are running the world and so on. Well, you know, you, a lot of that you can actually trace, trace back to, to Nietzsche. I mean, he, he was, you know, completely ignored in his own time. No one, hardly Ugh. anyone, hardly anyone knew who he was. What a miserable life! Yeah, not a not a fun life. <laughs> it's a, a a lonely life, and uh, uh, I think he he bitterly uh, uh, resented uh, the, the fact that that he wasn't being treated as the intellectual giant that he took himself to be. I mean, he was right, you know, he, and he was right that that. People would start reading him in the 20th century. And in fact, regard him as as one of the leading thinkers of his time. But um, uh, he only barely saw that, I think, before he went mad. Just just briefly, before, did he right. realize that he was becoming successful? As I understand it, well, he went he went 
he went mad in 1889. I don't think there was much. I mean, there, yeah, hardly, hardly any notice. Hardly, right. Just, just starting. I mean, it really, uh, you know, picked up in the 1890s. And then as one gone to the 20th century, it just, he took off and became perhaps the most influential thinker of the 20th century or mm -hmm. one, one of the most influential thinkers. And, you talk uh, about, uh, you, you talked about culture. And um, one of the things that you say was that he would say, Nietzsche would say that, that, modern liberals are too reflective about their membership in cultures and about the equal validity of alternative cultures. Um, we, we do talk a lot about culture, but not in the way I was trying to think how, you know, with all the talk of multiculturalism, how that fits in with his, his critique of cultures. Well, again, I think that you can draw a direct line from that to the, contemporary far right. I mean, this is, I think, in this sense, they're, they're precisely, you know, Nietzscheans in this strict sense that, uh, you know, part of what we associate with modernity and part of why Nietzsche condemns modernity is one's trying to ascend to a kind of universalism where we appreciate different cultures and what, you know, different uh, uh, communities with, within the human world have to contribute to a larger conversation and a larger human experience and, and uh, a kind of impartiality. Uh, well, you know, I think, I, again, I think here you could see Heidegger as an heir, an intellectual heir to Nietzsche, that real, real cultures are so deeply rooted that they don't see outside of themselves, don't see outside of their own house. Ah, want to. Interesting. And, and the, I mean, the core idea, which I trace back to Houston Disadvantage and History for Life, as it's articulated very well there, but it's, you can, I, I kind of draw text from across Nietzsche's oeuvre, um, the idea of horizon, that, that uh, you know, test of a real culture is, it's so convinced of its own, you know, normative superiority, that it's just not interested in looking beyond itself. Well, you know, the court to talk about Heidegger for a minute, the, 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 you could say the central rhetoric in Heidegger is that modern man is homeless. You know, this is the, you get this idea in his important letter on humanism, that homelessness is the core modern experience. And again, it's like for Nietzsche, the, 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 uh, the con is what condemns modernity. I mean, for, for Nietzsche, what condemns modernity is there are no horizons, that uh, the, the universalism that has been introduced into Western experience by Christianity has dissolved horizons. I mean, the horizon for much of Christianity was the idea of God itself and God's dead, and we're left with nothing, and we're just left with some kind of residues of uh, a Christian civilization, but those are fast eroding. And so we're left just drifting and we, so our kind of supposed openness to a variety of cultures shows we have no culture. We have no horizons of our own. We have, we live in this horizonless world. Well, Heidegger, similarly, we kind of live in this homeless world where everyone's trying to be, you know, universal and they're not rooted in any particular, you know, definite ex ex cultural uh, identity or cultural experience of their own. And, uh, you know, the kind of far right 
attack on multiculturalism, I think just draws straight out of that. I mean, one of these alt-right thinkers, Greg Johnson said that the originator of the European new right is Heidegger. And I think that's a plausible claim, but I think, you know, you can tr trace similar preoccupations back to Nietzsche and I try and do, do that in the book. Um, and I so think, um, and I'll just, as we go to Heidegger, I, I think immediately of um, Rorty, who in the New York Times said, similar to you, this, in the sense that we're not trying to say don't read Heidegger, but Rorty said uh, Heidegger's books will be read for the next, for centuries to come, but the smell of smoke from the crematories, the grave in the air, um, referring back to Paul Ceylon's death fugue, the grave in the air will linger on their pages. Mm, well, uh, uh, I think that's true. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, 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 I, you know, I discuss in the book how some of the most, uh, some of the most incriminating texts in Heidegger were, uh, you know, taken out by Heidegger in the 60s. And then when they put together you know, the collected works in the 80s, they were put put back in. And, uh, you know, I think that that tells you a lot about Heidegger, that he that, that he, he was never prepared to admit, you know, that he had made any mistakes. Uh, he was silent about the Holocaust or insofar as he, you know, he, people people forced, you know, commentary out of him. It, 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 it was even more incriminating than, than silence. Um, I, you know, I think it, 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 it relates to what I was saying earlier, that, that the, there is, the core project is to destroy a liberal egalitarian world founded on the idea of a universal dignity of human beings. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the commitment to fascism is, is actually not some, I don't know, some ornament or some, you know, add-on, but was connects quite centrally to what what his fundamental project was, and and uh, you know, in a sense, if if you know fascism didn't work out in the 20th century, well, his thought will still be around centuries later, and some later version will have to try and do what the you know what Hitler and Nazis failed to do in the in the thirties. I mean, um, and uh, Rorty also says, um, you know, he lied over and over again about his Nazism that he did uh, he did his best to ignore the murder of the European Jews. Mm -hmm. um, but for those who care about philosophy, things are not so simple. Uh, he says, as far as whether to read him, and this is again getting back to your point, he managed to write books that are as powerful and as original as Spinoza's or Hegel's. And you can't understand really Gadamer or Levinas, Arendt, Foucault, Derrida, Habermas, without take reading Heidegger. That's what Rorty was saying. Uh, I, I pretty much agree with all that. I mean, yeah, we should read him. He, I mean, he earned his place in the canon of Western philosophy. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's almost certainly correct that, that people will read them long from now, just as they read Aristotle or, or read Hegel. And uh, I, I don't, 
I wouldn't want to expel him from the canon. I wouldn't want to, you know, pull his books out of the library as, uh, you know, uh, one prominent critic of Heidegger suggested. So, uh, I, you know, I think that's right. I mean, he's, there's, there's a reason why people read him and there's a reason why he's been essential to 20th century philosophies as he's been and why he's had the tremendous influence he's had on a whole generation of philosophers um, you know, many of whom I, you know, I, I kind of cherish and, uh, right. and shape my own career as a theorist. So right. you don't wipe all that away or wish it away. Uh, he's, he's, um, and, and same for Nietzsche. I mean, they, they, they're indispensable, you know, part of the history of modern philosophy. Right. And, uh, I, I have, but uh, that's, that's not a reason to try and, whitewash them exactly apologize for them or kind of pretend that they that the, the project was something different than what it really was right no, absolutely look at that clear-sightedly and face up to it and and uh understand why these uh, thinkers have such attraction for people who are, who are not good liberals but who are ferociously anti-liberal and uh those people are are on the rise and you know have a big and growing following and and if they understand themselves in Nietzsche and Heidegger in terms we have to understand that and maybe uh, if necessary reread Nietzsche and Heidegger until until we're clear about it and mm -hmm. uh, trying to contribute in a my modest way to that uh, yeah and I, that's certainly the way I I understood it um, it was fascinating I. Um, um, I wish we had, we don't have time, but for the listener, there's an interesting anecdote you have about uh, your own personal interactions with Gadamer and Habermas, which is quite, quite, quite interesting. Um, what are you, um, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I was just wondering, what are you working on um, now? Uh, Freud, is that? Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm writing a, uh, a book uh, called uh, Moses and Political Philosophy, uh, looking at the uh, whole diversity of appropriations of the Moses story within the Western theory canon. And uh, uh, I, I'm co-writing it with my friend Harrison Floss. And uh, so Freud figures in that because, of course, he wrote. Sure. The, so, so Freud did write the, the Moses and Monotheism. And yeah, uh, so Moses that'll be and Monotheism. Right. So. Uh, uh, he, that's why he kind of gets gets included in in the book, but yes. on a broader broader story of how Moses intersects with with Western theory. Well, we'll look forward to that, um, Professor Biner. Thank you so much for talking with me. That uh, was really um, interesting, and I really enjoyed the book and um, appreciate uh, what you've done with that. Great. Well, thanks so much for your interest in it, and pleasure chatting with you.